As you know, last week we started a uh, brand new series called Fight, and we're learning from the, the Bible what God says about how to fight for your family instead of fighting with your family. And we're using the book of Nehemiah from the Old Testament, and we're using Nehemiah chapter 4 as kind of our launching point for the study. Now, I want to just give you a little recap of where we are uh, in the story and, and how we got there. Several years before Nehemiah was actually born, the Israelites had been conquered by the Babylonians. And when you think about Babylon, think Iraq. And um, so the city of Jerusalem, its walls, its city, the temple was just, just all just completely demolished. And many of the leading citizens of Jerusalem were carried away in shackles, taken about a thousand miles plus up into Babylon. And so when Nehemiah gets into the picture, all of a sudden now you see that uh, he is under the, the rule of the, of the Persian Empire. When you think about Persia, you think of Iran. And the, the king of Persia gives permission to Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Now, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem, never been to Israel. He's heard stories about God's holy city. He's, he's heard about the beautiful walls that, that surrounded the cities, the gates. He's heard about, about God's temple. However, when he gets to Jerusalem, things are, things are much worse than any report that he had ever heard before. The city was a complete disaster. The people that lived there were disillusioned. They were complacent. I mean, they had completely lost hope. And so right from the get-go, Nehemiah has, has, a, has a challenge. But he does what a great leader does. He, he, he rallies the people together. He gives them a purpose. He gives them a plan to rebuild again. And together they begin to rebuild the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem. However, as they're about halfway finished, uh, they face some opposition. And they're ridiculed, they're insulted, and, and they're actually threatened. Their lives are threatened. Things got so bad that the builders became, the Bible says, they became overwhelmed with fear. And they began to complain about how you know, tiring the work was and how powerful the enemies were and how, how they just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't go on any further. I mean, they were just ready to, to quit right in the middle, middle of the building progress. So Nehemiah does what a great leader does. He brings the people together once again. He rallies them around a vision and a cause. He reunites families who at this point have been scattered all over the city. They've actually been working at different parts of the city, brings them together, and he reminds them that God is on their side, and then he challenges them to fight. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, here's what Nehemiah says. He says, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Just like the people of Jerusalem thousands of years ago, I want you to know that we're engaged in a fight. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, moment by moment, second by second, we are in a fight. And last week we talked a little bit about this fight. We talked about the why behind our fight. Why are we fighting? Well, we're fighting for our, we're fighting for our families. We're fighting for our marriages and our spouses and our, our, our sons and our daughters and, and for the generations to follow. We identified our enemies. We talked about our enemies being Satan and, and the world system, which is what we're going to call culture, and, and, and the flesh, the old man that was put to death when we came to Christ, but yet somehow or another keeps wanting to pop back up in our lives. And then we talked about the weapons that God has given us and how we fight from our salvation and how we have a Holy Spirit who 
empowers us. And we talked about the power of God's word and prayer and our church family. And we talked about our Heavenly Father. Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about the actual people that are involved in the fight. And this morning, I'm going to be talking specifically to men. Next week, ladies, we're going to be addressing your role in the fight. And I want to say this as we get into this, because I'm going to be preaching from God's Word, I will be talking to men, but because I'm using Scripture, this pretty much applies to everybody. Everybody in this room. Now, typically when it comes to a series like this, and we get into talking to uh, men, in a lot of churches, women get built up and encouraged, and men take a beat down. Well, guys, here's my promise to you this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to shoot straight with you. I'm not going to pull any punches because what I would like to do more than anything else is I want to empower you. I want to encourage you and I want to equip you to fight for your family. However, I can promise you that you're not going to leave convicted and challenged. My job is to just faithfully preach God's word and the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us and then challenge us to take some kind of action. Now, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, God's mandate for a man, for men, was to be leaders in their homes and in their marriages. God made men and women alike. He made them equal. He made them in his own image. But he has given the man the responsibility to be the spiritual leader in the home. And we see that played out and commanded in Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. And with that call to spiritual leadership is also... Uh, a mandate for a godly man to fight for his marriage, to fight for his family, to fight for his kids, and to, and, and to fight for his own purity. Sometimes, if you're a single man, to fight for your, fight for your friends, to fight for your, even your, your parents. So as men, how are we to fight for our families? Well, the very first thing I want to talk about this morning is we are to fight for our family from God's strength and not our own. One of the very real challenges that men face is that we tend to be very self-sufficient, and we tend to rely on our own strength and power to try to get through life instead of really leaning into God's power and trusting His power and His strength that He provides for us. And when we do that, we, we pretty much get the same result all the time. We, we end up giving into one of the big three, one of Satan's traps, which we actually described last week. We call it a desire for power or a desire for pleasure or just pride. And then we begin to operate as a result. We begin to operate in the flesh rather than operating in the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, things begin to go off the rail a bit. Things go off the rail in our own personal lives. Sometimes in our marriages, things go off the rail in how we lead our kids. Sometimes in our career. And as many of you have seen or even experienced yourself, things get pretty messy. Listen, guys, these are challenging days in our culture to be a godly man. When I talk about fighting for your family in God's strength, I know that maybe you are struggling with that challenge because right now you just feel like I'm just barely able to fight for myself. I'm struggling just to, you know, it's like, Brian, I've got temptation coming at me all over the place. And everywhere you you look, you you feel like culture is just sucking you in and Satan's just kind of using you as a punching bag. And instead of feeling like a warrior who is fighting for his family or or fighting for your friends or fighting for your wife or or fighting for your kids, you just feel like a wimp who's doing nothing more than just always trying to just manage sin. There's a couple of things I want you to know. If you're a Christian, Satan can hassle you, he can tempt you, but he can't control you because you're a child of God. Second thing is, there is simply no sin struggle within or 
attempting evil without, that, that lives outside of God's forgiveness and delivering grace. There is, there, there is forgiveness for sin right now, and there is power through our relationship with Jesus Christ to overcome whatever your enemy may be throwing at you this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says, it is God who enables us. It's God who enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us, and he has identified us as his own by doing what? By placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. That's awesome. If, we, if we're, we're going to be godly men and fight effectively for our families, we have to remember where our strength comes from. And the Bible says that it is God who enables us to stand firm in Christ. And the way that we know that we belong to him is that he has placed his Holy Spirit inside of us. And that Holy Spirit empowers us and equips us to walk in God's strength and not our own. But we have to, try, we have to stop trying in our own strength. We have to, we have to stop trying to be self-sufficient and self-reliant and, and to be macho men who think that we can fight Satan and culture and flesh in our own strength because we can't. The Apostle Paul, I mean, he describes himself as a guy who was very self-reliant, a self, self-sufficient guy. But listen to what he learned about trying to operate like that. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, he says, For the sake of Christ then... I am content with weaknesses. You say, what? He says, I'm content with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. Because he says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I love this. He says, I'm going to face some hardships. I'm going to face setbacks. I'm going to face some tough times. I'm going to face some weaknesses. But here's what I've learned. Through Christ, when 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 I'm weak, he says, then I'm strong. In other words, when I operate in my own strength and my own power, I fail every single time. But when, when we tell the Lord, when I allow the Lord and I tell him, listen, I can't handle this apart from you. And we surrender all of this self-reliant, self-made, tough guy garbage and we let Christ live through us, what happens? We become strong in Christ. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now let me tell you, one of the ways you can become strong in Christ, and it's my next point, we have to fight for our families with a powerful prayer life. The Bible says in James chapter 5 or 16 that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now here's what some of you guys may be thinking right now. I'm not a righteous man. I'm not righteous. Listen, if you're a child of God, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, things are now right between you and and God. And even though, listen, even though you still sin, you have been declared stamped righteous. So when you pray to God, for the, the Father, for your wife or for your kids or for your family or for your purity or for your career or for even for your friends or your parents, listen, your prayers are going to be powerful and they're going to be effective. Now I know that prayer, I mean, for a lot of guys can be very intimidating, especially if you're a brand new Christian. But guys, listen, don't let that intimidation stop you because prayer is one of the most powerful weapons you have in your arsenal to fight for your family. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, I love this. God gives us this amazing invitation. He says, come boldly to the throne of 
our gracious God there, we will receive what? His mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. In other words, God is giving every one of us in this room a personal invite to come boldly into his presence. And he tells us that when we do, what what are we going to find? We're going to find mercy and we're going to find grace. In other words, God's not holding a scorecard above your head judging you when you pray. Oh, I heard that one. I'll give that one a four. No, I'll give you a nine. That was good. You ended that one well. Uh Uh-oh, bad. You you used a a wrong ending to that prayer. Two. God's not doing that. He's saying, listen, when you come into my presence, there's mercy and grace, so come and let's talk. Let's hang out together. Because you need help, and it's through your prayer life that I promise to help you. Now, as I just told you guys, listen, you're a righteous man. That is your position before God when you came to Christ, and it's all because of Jesus, not you. But I would not be telling you the whole story if I did not tell you that there are some things that will impact the power and effectiveness of your prayer life, not only in a positive way, but in a negative way. So let me, let me, let me take this from a positive angle. There are two things that will bring power to your prayer life, but there are two things that will also hinder it. First of all, you want power in your prayer life? Stay away from sin. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But then he says this, But the face of the Lord is against those who do, who do evil. I mean, what a great promise. When you pray, God says, listen, I'm listening. My ears are totally open. My eyes are on you. That means that we have direct access to the Lord. And when we pray, not, as, not only is he totally engaged in the conversation, but he is completely listening. But there's a great warning here as well. The Bible says, if you choose to continue to live in sin, the Lord's face is actually against you. In other words, not only is he not listening to you, he's not answering your prayers. He may be actually disciplining you at times. Another thing that we, that we know, need to know about bringing power into our prayer lives is when you honor your wife. Now, some of you may be thinking that I've gotten some letters from your wives this past week and I'm making this point up right now. That's not the case. The Bible actually talks about this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, men, listen, we're called to be understanding with our wives and to treat them with honor and respect because we're equal in God's eyes. Our wives are equal recipients of God's grace. But here's the warning. If we don't treat them with honor and we don't treat them with respect, our prayer lives will actually be hindered. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There are a few mornings in a few moments in my marriage over the last 23 years where I've gone to prayer, I'll sit down in a chair, get ready to pray, whatever it looks like, or I'm writing or pray, you know, just hands bowed or on my knees or whatever, and I'm going, okay, God, you're not listening. I've got to go apologize to Amy. And I'll walk away and I'll go, Amy, I need to talk to you. I'm sorry once again. And I'm in there trying to pray. and God's not listening to me. He's not answering because things aren't right between me and you. And, and I, you know, I've been a jerk. Um, and I need to apologize to you, and she's, you know, you're, you know, you're forgiven. So I go back and I talk to God, and we're, then we're good, okay? Listen, my brothers, if you want to have a powerful, effective prayer life, you need to keep a short account of sin with God, and you need to show honor and respect to your wife. And the Bible says try to understand her. Good luck. God, 
God will help you, okay? (laughs) God promises to forgive us, listen, every single time we come to him, the Bible says, with a broken, contrite spirit. Now, I cannot tell you that your wife is always going to be as forgiving as God is, but I can tell you this. When you keep a broken, contrite spirit before the Lord, you will engage the Holy Spirit into your life to empower you to be more understanding and honoring to your wife. And since women are typically responders, they will respond to a man and they will respect a man who keeps a humble, broken spirit before the Lord. This past Tuesday, um, I was just going through this outline with some of our pastors and directors and they asked me if I would kind of share some of my personal prayer life with you. And, and I was a little hesitant to do this because it's not, certainly not perfect and I'm not 100% every day. But this is the goal and hopefully more the norm than not. But, so I, I get up early in the morning um, and I will spend a, a lot of time in the Lord with prayer. Uh, and, and, and to be honest with you, I've been getting up earlier here recently because God has just truly convicted my heart to pray more for Westridge and pray more for you and more for our staff kids and our elders kids and, and even my own sons and my wife and, and that whole thing. So it's been, and I'm praying for revival as I've told you before. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking God probably, uh, it's been a, I mean, I'm just hammering, you know, away with the Lord in the morning. Another thing that I've done since 1992 is I've journaled my prayers and, and it just, what it does is it helps me keep my mind from wandering because sometimes like you, I'll get on my knees or I'll be, you know, trying to pray and my mind's going in five different directions. And, you know, there's conditions, that we, there's medical things that will describe that. But I have the history of my prayer life in print. I also, you guys, if you have a phone with apps on it, I mean, there's a little note section in there. And so I will keep little notes on just my prayer requests that, you know, my boys give me. And before the, our this semester of school, we sat down as a family and Amy gave me hers and Taylor gave me his and Zach gave me his and, and we're praying for our dog. I mean, we're, we've got, I've got seriously a prayer list and then of our elders and our staff. And, and so I have different prayer lists that I pray through. And then Amy and I, we, we try to pray together every night. And so my prayer life connects me to the power of the Holy Spirit. It connects me to the heart of God. It helps me to understand his word. And it gives me boldness and confidence as I go throughout this day. And it's one of the most powerful weapons that I have against Satan and the world and the flesh as I fight for my family. And you see this in Nehemiah. As, there, as, as, as opposition is coming against him, what is Nehemiah doing? He's constantly going back to the Lord in prayer. The third thing, we fight for our family by choosing to cheat in the right places. Now, I know that little point may seem kind of odd, but let me tell you what it means. And to do that, let me tell you a story. As you know, Westridge started in 1997, and we had just significant growth. And in 2000, we literally, as a staff, there were four of us at the time, or maybe a little bit more at the time, but I I just came to the end of myself. Uh, We were growing so quickly, and I asked a friend if he would arrange a lunch meeting with Andy Stanley. And I'd never met him before. And so I went to this lunch. It was over in Alpharetta. And I, I had one question. Normally I come with more, but I had one because I was so burdened. And here's a question that I asked him. I said, how do I have a healthy marriage and, and be a healthy dad, raise healthy kids with this church that's just, I mean, I'm overwhelmed by what's happening. And I'm, you know, I'm just, I work, 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 work. I think at the time I was 70, 80 plus hours a week. And I'll never forget what he told me. He looked at me and said, you need to choose to cheat. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, cheat the church, don't cheat your family. Cheat your career, cheat the business, cheat your hobby. Don't 
cheat your family. And then he said something to me that I will never forget. He said, God never promises to make up for misguided priorities. And from that moment, I took, he, he, we went back to his office. He gave me a CD. It might have been a cassette tape. It wasn't an eight-track, but it was, it was a cassette. I literally, with tears in my eyes, drove home from Alpharetta. I took it up to an elder retreat, and I played it for our elders. And I'm looking at these guys, and I'm realizing this isn't just a pastor thing. This is a thing a lot of guys face. I mean, tears running down their face. And from that, we re, I, I created some more, a healthy balance for what I do. I cre- I, I, with our elders supporting, I created a work week for me and our staff that, that would pr- hopefully bring healthiness to our marriage and to our kids. I became religious about taking a day off, which I hadn't done in a long time. I started dating Amy again. We got so, she and I both got so wrapped up into getting this church off the ground. We just, we stopped dating. I created some boundaries in my life and my marriage. I, I placed Amy and my boys as my priority before my career and this church. And as a result, I also meet with three elders once a month who keep me accountable to do the things I just told you about. Listen, it is quite possible, it is quite possible had I not made that decision in 2000 that I might be more successful in the eyes of the world. It is quite possible that Westridge might actually be a bigger church than it is today. But it would have cost, it would have come at the cost of my marriage, my kids, and my priorities not being right before the Lord. When when the enemies of Israel rose up and they threatened the rebuilding of the walls and the gates around Jerusalem, Nehemiah came up with an incredible plan. He brought the families back together because they were scattered all over the place, all over the construction site. And he told, he said, listen, each man, I want you to fight with one hand. With one hand, put a weapon in your hand and fight. And with the other hand, keep building. Now, do you think that they could have built the wall faster if they would have just focused on building the wall and left their families exposed? Yeah, it's possible. But building the wall quickly wasn't, it it wasn't the why behind why they were building. It was about protecting their spouses and their daughters and their sons and their families and ongoing generations. That was the goal. That was the why behind why they were building. That was the priority. And as a result, God blessed them for it. I mean, they, they built this wall in a, miraculous amount of days. And so my question for you guys is, what's your priority? What's your why? If you find your identity or your self-worth in your success in the world or your significance in whatever, whatever it is that you do, I want you to know it's an empty, perilous pursuit. Find your identity in Jesus. Choose to cheat in the right places and trust God to fill in the gaps. Number four, fight for your family without fear. One of the things that, that the builders in this story dealt with when their enemies came against them was fear. Their fear caused them to be paralyzed and it caused them to be passive. They lost their will to build and they became afraid to fight. And I just know this because I'm a man and I have a heart for men. Fear is a huge issue for men. We fear not being successful. We fear not being significant. We fear rejection. We fear letting down our wives and our kids that somehow or another we're going to fall off this white horse that we've actually put ourselves on in our own mind. We fear failure. And what happens is is that fear makes us emotionally and spiritually unhealthy and weak. And oftentimes when you see a man who is paralyzed with fear, he responds in one or two ways. He either becomes passive or he he becomes prideful. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, it says that God doesn't give us, he's not the author of the spirit of fear. Instead, he gives us a, a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline, self-control. 
365 times in the Bible, God uses some variation of the phrase, fear not. That is one fear not for every single day of the year. Do you think that's an accident? Guys, every guy I know, including me, deals with fear. And what we need from time to time is for someone to whisper into our ear, don't be afraid because I'm with you. When the families who were building the walls were paralyzed with fear, Nehemiah told him, he said, don't be afraid of the enemy. Instead, remember the Lord. He is great and he's awesome. He actually told them, God will actually fight for you. If you remember in Rocky chapter, Rocky 2, um, we got to talk about Rocky if we're going to talk about men, right? I mean, one of my favorite scenes in that movie is, is, is Adrian, you know, she, she, she's pregnant and she gives birth to their son and, and she goes into a coma. And Rocky's supposed to fight Apollo Creed. And he just loses his will to fight. Becomes passive. He just, he, he's, he's fearful, obviously. He may, may lose his wife. May, I mean, he's just, he's supposed to be training to, to, for this rematch against Apollo Creed and he just, he's done. He's lost his will to fight. He can't do it. And day after day, night after night, he, he sits by Adrian's bedside and he reads to her while his trainer Mick sits in the corners like. And eventually one day, all of a sudden, her fingers start moving. And they bring in the baby and they see him for the first time and, and, and they're gonna, they name him Rocky Jr. And, and, and all of a sudden, Adrian says, I want to tell you something, come close to me. And, and he's talking about, I'm going to quit and we'll figure out another way. To, and she said, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to win. He said, what? I want you to win. And then Mick goes, what are we waiting for? Let's get out of here. I mean, I love that part. (laughs) Listen, sometimes, sometimes we need someone who will whisper into our ear, don't be afraid. Get in the battle. Let God fight for you because you've already won. You're a winner. Because of Jesus Christ, you're a winner. As a Christian, we have a heavenly father who has already won for us. When Jesus went to the cross and he defeated sin and death, and as, as a result of all of that, the Bible says, what are we? We're overcomers. We're more than conquerors because of Jesus. We're winners in this life and we're winners in death, so we have nothing to fear. Whether you're a man, woman, whether you're a child or you're a student, you have nothing to fear. Which kind of tees up my last point. Fight for your family from your identity in Christ. Guys, listen, I know that many of you did not have a father that poured affirmation or, or love into your life. I meet guys all the time who just, they spend countless hours trying to overcome these hurtful wounds that were inflicted upon them by a father. They actually become slaves to those hurtful wounds and it gets just played out in all kinds of unhealthy ways. And my encouragement to you this morning is the same encouragement I gave at Christmas. It's time for some of you to switch fathers. Romans 8, chapter 15 says, So you have not received a spirit that makes you a fearful slave. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Daddy. We call him Abba. We call him Abba Father. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 through 8 says, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. Let me tell you what I just read to you. Because of Jesus, 
I have been adopted as one of God's own children. I can look, come into his presence and I can call him daddy. I can call him father. My present and my future is secure and so are you as a child of God. I am no longer a slave to fear and I'm no longer a slave to sin. In other words, I have a heavenly father who loves me. He's never going to leave me. He is a father whose acceptance of me is not based on my performance for him and he isn't holding my past failures over my head. My identity in this life is rooted deeply in my heavenly father because of what Jesus has done for me. So, as, as most of you know, years ago, uh, my, my dad died in 2004. And, um, but year, several years before he died, he got into researching our family. Uh, and he did some really cool work, but... And a lot of it was before the, a lot of the internet tools came available, Ancestry.com. And so all he had, he had names and pictures and stories and other people that were, you know, information from other people that had been working on it. And a few years ago, I decided to pick up his work and, and to keep it going. And so I signed up for Ancestry.com and, and really got into taking some of his work f- further. And because I, I love studying people and I love studying people's behaviors, I, I really became intrigued by my father's side of the family, the Bloys. And um, my grandpa Bloy, uh, his name was John as well. They, they call, he went by the name Jack. He was born in Ontario, Canada in 1911. And uh, I believe in the, in the 40s, he, they moved to Detroit and, and he owned a flower shop for many, many years in downtown Detroit. And then he died in 1995. And my grandfather was a hardworking man, but he was, a, he was also a very hard man. And my, he always, just, just, my, my memories of him were just always seemed to be angry and agitated. He had, a, he had a bad temper. He was not very affectionate. And I actually grew up a little bit afraid of him. I was, I was scared of him. Well, as I began to research my family, I wanted to know what, what, what happened to him. What, what caused him to be the way that he was. And so I found some research on his father, who was my great-grandfather, who's Frederick Bloy. And I found a document that said that my great-grandfather actually spent several years in his early childhood in the William, Wilmington, Delaware home for friendless and destitute children. Now imagine what that would do to you as a young man or even as, 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 as a young lady. And then I begin to realize as I think about my great-grandfather and my grandfather, there, there was a pattern going on here. So my grandfather... Grew up never feeling loved, and he never really knew how to express his own love to his family. Well, the Sunday before my dad died in 2004, some of you remember this, I actually got a chance, it was Father's Day, and so my dad and I preached together. And he talked about his dad. And so I thought rather than tell you the story, I'd let him tell you the story. Number two. A spoken word of affection and love. I was married at uh, 19. Thirteen months later, uh, Brian came along. I was uh, completely mesmerized by this uh, tiny little thing that we brought home from the hospital. and, And I used to stare into his crib and... And I was just so filled with, with love for this little boy. And then it occurred to me that um, 
all the years of growing up, I could not remember one time when my father told me that he loved me. And that bothered me for a moment, but I said to myself, things are going to change right here. And I will express the love and affection that my father couldn't express for me. And later in life, uh, I took the time to look into my father's background, and, and I learned this. He had a mother and father, but when he was five weeks old, he and his five brothers and sisters were put in an orphanage. And he was raised in this orphanage and beaten and mistreated by the, the nuns who raised him. And he stayed in this orphanage until he was eight years old. At, at the age of eight, he contracted tuberculosis so he went from an orphanage to a TB sanitarium. And he spent the next four years there. And at the age of 12, they said he was cured, so they put him out on the streets of London, Ontario. And at the age of 12, he was on his own. So when I understood uh, his background, it made it a whole lot easier for me to forgive him. The Bible says if God can forgive us, who can we not forgive? And so I took the opportunity to forgive my father. Forgive him for not expressing love. Forgive him for not uh, expressing affection. He lived to be 84 years old, and the last year of his life, uh, he developed dementia or Alzheimer's or whatever you'd like to call it, and mercifully, he only lasted one year. But during that one year, he told us that he loved us. And I just thought that that was God's gift to me and my brothers and sisters who had not heard that all our lives. But I forgave him, and I forgave him for my sake. Some of my brothers and sisters have not yet forgiven him. And so when, uh, we, when I go home and we talk about my father, we have a totally different perspective. I'll say something about dad, and they'll say, oh, you mean that mean old man? But I forgave him for my sake. And if you uh, are here and you've uh, lacked uh, the love and affection or your father gave you the wrong message, it's time to take responsibility. Because as an adult, you don't have to live out the things that befell you as a child. You can say uh, from here on, things are going to be different. And the love that my father never shared with me, I'm going to share with him. And so if I err, I err in overkill. 
I don't want a day go by when I don't tell Brian that I love him. I don't want a day to go by when I don't tell Kevin that I love him. And I don't want a day to go by when I don't tell Jonathan that I love him. One of the... One of the things I love that my dad said in there is he said, I decided that things will stop right here. They will not go further than me. One of the things that, that uh, I will tell you about my grandfather that my dad didn't say in this audio clip is that later in my grandfather's life, he, he mellowed out. This was well before even he had um, a, a dementia. And uh, I was in my 30s at the time. He, he, he seemed to smile. He seemed to laugh more. He wasn't always mad and irritated at the world. And I remember asking my dad about it. And my dad told him, told me, that he had a chance to lead my grandfather to the Lord. And then that's when the change began to take place. Imagine living for nearly 80 years of your life in your own strength and power and feeling like you're a failure. Imagine never really having a model for how to be a godly man or how to, someone to show you to, to how to love your own children because you never received it yourself. Imagine living in fear that no matter what you do, it isn't good enough. And imagine never feeling like you had a father who believed in you. And that was my grandfather. He was a slave to fear and sin. But as an older man, God reached down and offered him a relationship with Jesus Christ and he adopted him into his family. And my grandfather, somewhere in his late 70s, early 80s, where my grandfather finally had a father who believed in him. And that father gave him a secure future and freed him up from fear and the power that sin had over his own life. Guys, here's how we fight for our family. We do it in God's strength, not on our own. We do it on our knees from a powerful prayer life. We, we do it with our priorities in the right place. We, we don't fight from, from fear. We, we fight from victory. And we fight from our identity in Christ. And some of you are here to some of you guys have never had anybody tell you before that you're loved, that someone believes in you, that you're secure and you're safe, that you no longer have to be a slave to sin or fear or all of that. But I want you to know, as we've already laid out, when, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, God adopts you into his family. And because of Jesus, he looks at you, he stamps righteousness on you, and he says, that's my boy. That's my girl. And because of Jesus, they've got what it takes. And I'm going to put my Holy Spirit inside of them so that they can not only live victoriously in this life, but also they can have victory in the next life. Bow your heads for just a moment. Men, women, children, students, singles, if you're here today, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, I want you to know God invites you into that relationship with Him and offers you forgiveness, offers you new life, a fresh start. If you've never done that, would you pray with me right now? With 21 people that did that last week, would you do it today? You say, Lord Jesus, at this very moment, I put all of my faith and every bit of my trust in you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Lord, I can't, I can't do this any longer in my own strength. What Jesus did for me on the cross was enough. And I confess with my lips that Jesus is the Son of God and I receive his free gift of salvation. 
And Lord, would you teach me how to walk with you? Would you show me how to become a true follower of your son, Jesus? Thank you for this gift that I could have never earned in my own strength. 